All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Welcome. Special welcome to you if you're new. Good to see you again if you're not. Uh, we're going to pray, and then if you'd like to stand for our, uh, for our first song. Lord Jesus, thank you for the immensity of your power and presence and person and your word. May we hear today, um, not alone, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the same as I pray uh, for our pastor, that he would not preach alone, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, may this be a day where you are glorified um, for your wonderful name and for your name's sake. May you draw us in and sanctify us and help us as we hear and to be excited that we get to hear the word of the Lord and uh, that we get to leave this place and just as excited to carry it into the world, knowing that you've established yourself in us. And thank you for such marvelous grace. May our hearts be found depending on you and all that you are and nothing less and nothing more. It's for your wonderful name. Amen. Day from the night, 
with spirits you made me see. And I swore I knew the way on my own, a head full of rocks, a heart made of stone. With spirits you moved in me. Now at your touch, my sleeping spirit was awakened. On my darkened heart, the light of Christ has shone. Oh, called into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Where heaven set ascends by grace and grace alone. Oh, so I'll stand in faith by grace and grace alone. And I will run the race by grace and grace alone. And I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. Yes, I'll reach the end by grace and grace alone. All right, let's go ahead and have a seat, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. Hopefully everybody's doing good. Everybody's having a good Memorial Day weekend as far as being able to gather together with friends and family. Uh, I know there are graduations happening and there's celebrations. Uh, but the underscoring of Memorial Day weekend, I think that um, that's something that we do have to pause and we have to remember why that is a thing, uh, which we'll get to in just a minute. Uh, but I'd just like to welcome everybody, welcome our friends who are online. Welcome uh, to John Barrett up there in the um, peanut gallery, and um, just uh, so glad you guys could be with us today. Hopefully everybody's doing well, and as um, we gather, hopefully our spirits will be encouraged and, if necessary, revived. Um, however God, it is, God, God has in mind to challenge us, uh, that we're just open to that. Uh, so a couple of things um, as we get into uh, our time of announcements. If you have on the back of uh, your announce or your uh, um, message notes, um, there are a few announcements that uh, I want you to pay attention to. Um, <laughs> I noticed the first one, office is closed on Monday. So keep that in mind. If you show up and nobody's there, you should probably be observing Memorial Day with, uh, with, with loved ones. Uh, but we also have the Super Cruise coming up uh, just this, this coming week, and the Brightside Project, who we're collaborating with, um, is hosting um, that, and so we're collecting some things there. So just take a look at that and the rest of the announcements, and just keep in mind what's happening as uh, we engage with a lot of different fronts that have to do with the mission of First Christian Church. Uh, so as you do that... Um, just a couple of things. Uh, one is I, I, I want to, out of the gate, uh, celebrate something. Um, and that is uh, we are in, I don't know what you would call it. It's a fruitful moment. But um, our friends uh, John and Chelsea Sisson, I don't know if you, if you know those guys or not, uh, they had a baby. And uh, it's John Bridger. And so there you go. Pretty excited to meet John. They said that um, they're excited to come and and introduce you to him. So that's, that's really an awesome, 
uh, thing. But Chelsea had a hard time with her pregnancy, and she's, she's recovering, but she was in the hospital for a few days. And, um, and if you knew about that and you're praying for them, appreciate that. But uh, they're getting better, and uh, their whole world has changed now. It's got a whole new center of orbit, as you know, if you've ever been there. Um, and there are a few other people I know where this is getting ready to happen. So I know Rich and Adrian on Wednesday will be going in, uh, and, uh, and Adrian will uh, have a C-section. So be praying for her and, and, and for Rich and for the kids. This is for their family. Uh, it's going to be a pretty exciting moment for, for you guys. And um, we've got, uh, let's see, uh, Erica and um, uh, uh, Jared uh, Niederheiser, that's coming up. And I know I'm missing one more. Um, but anyway, lots of people around us that are expecting, so please keep them lifted up so we can have safe delivery of babies uh, into the world. Um, then on kind of the flip side of all of that, uh, I remember... Uh, when I came here in 2005, we were kind of licking our wounds from uh, a tragedy that our family had experienced. Um, I had a, uh, a cousin who uh, died in a helicopter crash in Iraq uh, on January 26th. It was 31, 31 Marines were killed in this, uh, in this event, and it seems like of all of the ones cataloged in Iraq, uh, that was the... Um, that was the biggest one so far, and I think the biggest one on, on, on record for that, that moment of that part of the war. So I, I think that as um, you know, we're thinking about how personal that's been on, on our family front, I also want to recognize, are there any family uh, members that are, that are surviving, so to speak, that have had loved ones that have uh, died in, in any active military service? Anyone here? Okay, so we have one up there. Is that you, Mary? Okay. And who else? Oh, Pat. Okay, Pat. Um, and how about just loved ones who, who've served in the armed forces that have passed on? That's probably quite a number of us. And either way, uh, we want to remember uh, it is a, uh, a season in our country where if we really appreciate what we have, what we've been given, what we've been blessed with, uh, we realize that it's at the expense of the lives of, of a lot of people. And we are not being, um, I think, good stewards of our country or grateful citizens uh, without recognizing all of those that have sacrificed so that we could be here today. And... Um, there's a lot about flags in the sanctuary that send a lot of different signals, but one of the things that we want to do as Christians is recognize a debt of gratitude for being in this country, even though we're aliens and strangers, but also recognizing that in this country we have civic responsibilities and things to attend to, none of them above the priority of Jesus, because without Jesus we wouldn't have a country, and without Jesus our country will not be sustained. And so all of those things have to be kept in perspective by God's people. Now, with that said, um, if you have any pastoral prayer concerns, uh, please feel free to see me in the, in the studio afterwards. That's been working very well. I've been able to uh, attend uh, to a lot of prayer concerns that way. And if you're a prayer warrior, 
um, and you like to catalog the prayers and you're not getting them all, uh, we want to try to find a way to make that happen. So uh, you can certainly contact the office or see me if there's anything that, that you might miss, because uh, we do want to be praying for one another. Um, with that said, let's go ahead and just take this moment, and I'd like to just take about 20 seconds or so and just have a moment of silence and remember all those that have served, and then after that, I'd like to just go into our prayer time. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, it's hard for us to calibrate the significance of the weight of this moment and this weekend. When you just imagine those who go off to serve and there are so many wonderful prospects of camaraderie, of purpose, of being able to do something that helps a whole lot of other people live peaceful lives. And yet in all of that commingling of strong emotions and purpose and passion. We know that there are those that have not come home. And the purpose for their life and the trajectory of their life never filled itself out on the timeline in ways that we'd hoped or imagined. So we thank you, Lord, that for those who gave and those who have lost, that there is a hope beyond even this life. That you secure for us a place in eternity where whatever it is that occurs to our human existence here on earth, there is someone who has gone beyond even the barriers that our five senses provide for us that there is an empty tomb that says through a bloodstained cross we have a way that we could never imagine based on a sacrifice that was beyond comprehension. And we are so thankful, Lord. We dedicate the first day of every week just remembering you around a meal that symbolizes what you've sacrificed. And we are grateful that as we push the pause button on everything that has to do with the busyness and the priorities and the details of our lives, and we put you at the very center, and we realize that in you is the source of our hope, our life, our well-being, our wisdom, every possible thing that we need for life and life everlasting. And so we prioritize you above everything, trusting that as we do, that you will put light on our path along the way. You will comfort broken hearts. You'll provide encouragement to those that are languishing, and you will show us, Father, your purposes, and at times, painfully so. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your church as a gift to 
be in community with others of like mind, but also as a gift to the world as we express through the various pathways that represent each life here the good news of the gospel. So we pray that as we leave here today that we would be fit stewards of that good news and that our hearts and our minds would be calibrated in the right way according to your purposes for each of our lives. And so, Father, help us. Help us to be those people, to surrender our hearts and our lives to you and to you alone, to trust that as we unfold this week, you are leading the way even as we make the plans. We thank you for celebrations like young lives that are born into the, into the world that show so much hope and prospect, for mothers expecting who are just waiting for that moment when the baby arrives, for people that are grieving, not only for loved ones lost in the military or who have passed on, but for people that have become near and dear that are no longer here. So it's a very, it's, it's, it's a very acute moment, Lord, that we are in. And we pray that your ministering spirit would be at work in all of those emotions and feelings and thoughts. And as a church that is navigating through very questionable times, we pray that we would be anchored in the foundation that we have in Christ, in your word, and that we would have the mind of Christ taking every thought captive. So Lord, I ask that you just help us to tune our hearts and our minds as we pray together the Lord's Prayer. Would you pray with me now? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, well, we're going to just take a few minutes and we're going to explore again the book of Luke. Um, as we uh, have been going through this journey of following Jesus through this book, I don't know how your experience has been, but mine certainly has been um, as I've attended to this path and I've had to proclaim it hopefully in a way that is understandable and meaningful, um, I've also found myself listening to Jesus in very new and fresh ways and recognizing the authority and the role that he has over my life and hopefully yours as well, that we can truly become the people that this moment brings us into. Because it is a strange moment that we are in, no question about it. All of the authority figures, leaders, voices that we've come to trust in the course of our lifetime, whether they be presidents or congressmen or people that are responsible for making sure we are safe or people that are responsible for teaching our children, have all been severely challenged by what this period of time brings. And much of what we have to face each day is, uh, is, is new and foreign. Like the other day, I, I, went to, I went to get a tire repaired for my tractor about the 10th time. And, um, you know, there, there was a fellow who couldn't patch a tube. And I'm like, 
you can't patch a tube, when I had a bicycle, I learned to patch a tube. When I had a truck tire I had to repair, had to learn to patch a tube. I couldn't patch a tube. And I thought, well, that, that's a strange moment that we're in. You need a service done, and it can be any service anywhere. That's just an example. And it's like a, a lot of people just don't have the equipping necessary to do basic things. If you're a business owner, you're looking for employees, and you're saying, who can I hire? But not only who can I hire, who can, who can learn? Who can figure it out? Or who's had any experience? And you think about that, and you wonder, when people leave church, do they have enough in them to sustain them for six and a half days out there before they come back again to be able to handle the challenges of life. And my biggest concern as a pastor is I don't know. I don't know. Only time will tell. But you know, this burden isn't a new burden. It's a burden that Jesus had whenever he was looking at the landscape, the challenges, the lostness of the people, the inability for the religious leaders to equip people properly. And he's saying, out of this mix, I've got to create a church that is going to last until I come back again sometime one, two, three, ten thousand 10,000 years later. And can it be done? And the only way that he could really test that was to call 12 people and say, follow me and let's learn this and let's do this together. And as you're learning and doing, let's call some more people so that they can learn and do it together. And that's all well and good, but the problem that Jesus faced was, of all the places that he ran into opposition, it was, by his understanding, the church. And so Luke is telling the story from chapter 15 to 19 about a discussion and a conversation and a dialogue and then a hostile exchange between himself and the religious leaders. All this distraction and noise that he's having to deal with on the religious front is impeding his ability to equip and prepare and enable people to do basic things. And so here we go again. We're in Luke chapter 16. And I'm going to like circle back a little bit to part of what we covered last time because it's sort of a hinge and it's something that we have to really highly regard. And that is uh, beginning with verse 10. Um, Jesus said these words, which you heard last week. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. That is, if you can do a little thing well and you can do it responsibly, then chances are that's going to build into something that will have a greater complexity. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're in the workplace and you're thinking about learning a new job, which I'm sure all of you remember that, to where you're at now or where you were when you retired, you know that it got from pretty simple to pretty complicated. And when Jesus sees us, he says, just get the simple things, the basic things right. And then you will have the foundation that you need for whatever comes your way. Because if you get those things right, everything else will unfold the way it needs to. So he says this, if you're faithful in very little, you'll be faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little... That is, tell a little lie here, not really give all the full disclosure over here, and um, sort of edit the truth over there. Probably going to happen. 
in the larger, larger vein. If that is your impulse or your tendency, and he's really trying to put things in the proper order out of the gate so that the church can be the church. So then he says, if then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And, of course, we talked last week about the, the godless manager and the godless owner of the company and the godless responses and the godless expectations that people had and how you function in the world. And Jesus said, they do that pretty good, but I want you to do kingdom work pretty good as well. If you notice on the message outline, I kind of had Brittany repeat again what you had last week, and that is the contrast between how the world works and functions, because it is a thing, and how the kingdom functions, and they are different. And if you're, you know, if, if you're wanting to just follow Jesus, or if you're wanting to just say, hey, I just want to get saved, that's all I need. I just need to know that I am in. I, I'll wear a cross, and I'll just say, you know, I believe in Jesus. But if you were to ask me if I took him seriously and I tried to take what I learned from him as an authoritative voice for how my life should be played out, well, that's another thing. And so if that's where you're at, then just go for it. Live however you want to live. But if you're serious about listening to the voice of Jesus and saying, Jesus, how can I live in this world that is just so messed up? Uh, Because something has to change, and that's got to probably begin with, each of us individually. So there are the ways of the world, and then there are kingdom rules and conditions. And Jesus has a body of parables that he's already spoken, and he's telling them, how is it that we can understand the kingdom? And so in that body of parables, you just kind of bullet point what we're hearing. And as we're hearing it, we're like, well, that's different, that's different, that's different. Putting others first rather than just getting what you can while you can recognizing that there is power at work, but listening to the power of the voice of God and his empowering presence. Just a lot of shifts that happen very subtly, but they happen, and when they happen, they change us. They transform us. Our character, who we are, it becomes redefined along the lines of the character of Jesus. And that is Jesus' goal for each and every one of you guys. That when he sees us, more and more, he sees himself in you and I. Well, as Jesus is unfolding this part of it, he's actually using the badness of the religious leaders to illustrate what you shouldn't do. And so, as he's trying to define and refine our character, he's looking at characteristics in the lives of his followers that would be representative of the kingdom Because on this graph, actually, that smaller circle is that group of people, hopefully you and I, that live in the world that say we live and we march to a different pace and beat of a drum. And that primarily is what Jesus is leading us and calling us to do while you and I are in the world. Because the only hope for our country, the only hope for the world, is for Jesus to once again be reestablished in a way that all the other relationships that you and I have are defined by that primary relationship that we have with him. There is no hope for our country or any country, historically, that doesn't do that. They all rise and fall. They all fail. There isn't hope for a family that does that without Jesus. 
they'll probably fail. Matter of fact, you know, when I was in my formative years as a pastor, the big thing was the divorce rate was higher than the stay together rate. What's interesting is people have given up so much on even prospect of marriage that historically unprecedented, um, we have more people who are single than we do married. Why is that? Why is it that we can't even get along at that level? Or the possibility of finding somebody that we're compatible with becomes less and less. Why is it that many of our kids are saying, I'm not sure that I want to get married? What is it about a beautiful relationship that God says, this is the way I've designed it, and yet it is unobtainable? And Jesus is fearful of a lot of things. And one is that we will not become the people that he calls us to be. But secondly, we will not be able to know the creation as he's designed for us to know it and enjoy it. And Jesus is calling us, the church, to be that light, that salt, that voice to the world that says, hey, this is the way, he's the way. And so here's what Jesus says. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And as, as he's given this teaching, he's, he's looking at the Pharisees, because one of the things that kind of went hand in glove in that culture was, if you're religious and you were a priest, people looked up to you and said, I want to be like that person. I want to identify with that person. And if that person was a person who had some degree of wealth, all the better. It was like, if we have a priest and he's poor, who wants to identify with that? And so the Pharisees kind of played it up like, hey, you know what? We should be wealthy. We should drive the best car. We should live in the best house. And a lot of people, they kind of validated that and said, because, yeah, that's the kind of priest or that's the kind of religious leader that we want to follow. And while it doesn't make any sense maybe for us, but for other people, it's like, I want to identify with that, that person, that person that's got it all together. I mean, we have basketball players and we have celebrities and stars and people that we say, they're kind of our example or the example of what I want to become when I grow up. I want to, I want to be like Mike, you know, Michael Jordan for us old timers in here. I don't know what the, what the, uh, the corresponding statement is now. But in that day, it was, I want to be like so-and-so, you know, Rabbi Zachariah, if I could just be him. Or the mom would say, if my boy could just be like Rabbi Zachariah, that would be it right there. And all of this sort of celebrity that goes with that role is something that Jesus is also calling out because what happens is, the religion becomes something in service to the pursuit of that pride and that glory and that status. And Jesus is coming to town to make us think. And as he does that, he's saying, basically, you guys, you think you're following the Lord, but you're actually following money. And if we were to apply that, we might say, well, whatever it is that you and I put first, even above the Lord... Jesus would say, that can't work. That can't work. And 
as we unfold this a little bit further, we'll discover that those who love God have a relationship with money that is, that, that is driven by an understanding that this world is not all there is. There's an age to come. It's a resource, and that's it. But there are people that are in the crosshairs of Jesus who say, if you love that stuff and you're obsessed about that stuff and that stuff defines you and every choice that you make is centered on an economic choice, you're setting yourself up for idolatry. Now, probably doesn't apply to us Americans because, well, maybe if it did before inflation, we can't say that money's very helpful right now, even though necessary. And the more you pursue it, the more it tends to not come into our grasp. We can, we can touch it, but we can't hold it. And so Jesus is trying to say out of the gate, okay, disciples, I want you to know something. If you're going to follow me, use your money in a way that is according to design. You see, the Pharisees, as we read in verse 14, who are lovers of money, heard all these things, and they're just like poppycock. This is ridiculous. Don't listen to that guy. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so essentially he's throwing down and he's saying, you guys, you know what an abomination is? It's that thing that's taboo, that thing that defiles, that thing that makes unclean. You guys are that guy. And you can just see veins start to pop out, faces start to get red, and the anger began to just escalate. But what Jesus wants us to do is pretty radical. And even though he's talking to them, he's talking to you and I, because he's saying that these things will trip you up. They will take you off the path. Because money is there to be generous with, to be a steward of, to provide for your family. It is not there for you to serve. And the love of money is clearly the opposite of all of that. All of which, the only generosity that these guys over here are putting on display is for your ability to say they're great people, they're generous people. It's not generosity at all, it's just performing. And what the Pharisees prize that is money, simply an abomination in the eyes of Jesus. But here's where he's going with this, and that's why this is kind of the buildup or the setup. Because essentially, he's saying that since the time of John, you've read the Old Testament, and the law and the prophets were designed to help you have revelation from God, to know your path, to know that from outside this world, there is information that's come into this world so that you can make sense of what's happening in the world better than anybody else. It is there to shed light on the path that is your life and your lives together. But it's also there to show you my purposes throughout the course of time, from the very beginning in the garden to the time of Abraham, to the time of Moses, to the time of David, to the time of Jesus, to point to something, 
to say this has been the goal the whole time. But you see, by that time, they had just looked at the Bible as a catalog of information that would help them to get them what they wanted. And you can actually open up the Bible, and you can find stuff, and you can say, I'm going to take this verse, and I'm going to take this verse, and I'm going to put them together, and they're going to say, Leonard, what you're doing is okay. But they may have nothing at all to do with God's purposes or what those verses were originally intended to say. So if you are reading your Bible, one thing I would encourage you to do is ask the question, what is the context for the stuff that I'm reading? What's going on in the background of the passage? Before you ask the question, how does this apply to me? How does this make me feel? Ask the question, what's going on here? Because I know that if you have some kind of drama going on in your family, one of the first things that you do is ask, well, tell me exactly what's happening so you can get to the bottom of it before you can make sense of it. And Jesus is throwing up plenty of drama for you and I to look at in his larger family. And he's saying, take a look at this and then tell me what you think based on how I evaluate it. Because he's saying that from the law and the prophets who were until John, who came baptizing, and when he baptized me, what they pointed to was put into motion. It is now on. And since the good news of the kingdom of God is now being preached, everyone is forcing his way into it. Essentially, he's saying to the Pharisees, people are so excited about what I have to offer as a fresh word that they can't get enough of it. These crowds are following me because they're saying, yes, we want that. And they don't like that at all. And as he's saying this, um, he's saying, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I didn't come to get rid of the prophets. They have a place. They have a purpose. Without the backdrop of knowing the Old Testament, we really can't understand the New Testament. We really can't appreciate Christ. We don't know the backstory. If you say Jesus is a priest, your only reference may be, oh, I knew a priest down the road, but he was a pedophile. But if you read the Old Testament and you read about a priest, you're like, oh, that's what priests do. They offer sacrifices in the Holy of Holies. They're the ones who are the mediators between ourselves and God. And you use language that is from the Old Testament that helps us understand and define exactly who Jesus is. But our world is pretty corrupt. If I say somebody's a saint, you might say, well, they're playing football somewhere. Or if I say they're a saint, well, they're, they're a holy, holy person. But if Paul says they're a saint, he's saying, no, you're the, you're the holy ones. You're called out. You're like Israel. You have a purpose. You have a job. That's what a saint does. They represent. And as Jesus is validating the Old Testament, he's looking at them because they're accusing him of saying, hey, you know what? You are bypassing this whole thing. And you know what his response is? But you're weaponizing it for your purposes. And he uses something that is actually, it really hits close to home. Because he says, basically, on the outside, you appear to be godly people. You appear to have the representation mantle on your shoulders. But in reality, I know your hearts, and it is all self-serving. You know, back to this. I think point number uh, four or five. Self-interest and self-preservation are our chief concerns. He's saying, that's you. And they're like, what are you talking about? 
so then he rolls it out. This is sort of like the, the third rail or the elephant in the room. Because there's been, a, there's been an ongoing debate about what are the conditions that are appropriate for me to divorce my wife, to put her away. And one rabbi said, well, based on the teachings and the teachings of the rabbis, well, there actually is very minimal, if any, that you can possibly do that. Then there's another guy who says, she burns a toast. I'm not saying get a new toaster, get a new wife. And that really was the continuum of where people were at. And a lot of people were skewing towards that, and they were saying, but the rabbi, blah, 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 says this and that. And they debate all this stuff. But what Jesus says here is even more dramatic and revolutionary because in that event, it was the guy who could say, I can divorce you. She couldn't divorce him except under really, really extreme conditions. And the reality was he's saying that it's a covenant that involves two people. And he says, everyone who divorces a wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So he's actually redefining some of the teachings of the rabbis. And I don't want to go into all the technical aspects of it. But I do just want to say this because it kind of has application for you and I. We can look at the scripture and we can try to weaponize it for our own end and justify what we want it to say for our purposes, which is essentially what they were doing, and he calls them out on it. Or we can look at this, which he doesn't really go into detail on the, the notion of marriage and divorce and covenantal faithfulness. He just kind of touches on it because he's making a point for them. And Matthew 19 goes into greater detail. Sermon on the Mount certainly has a lot more to say, and Paul does as well. Uh, in his writings to the Corinthians. But if I were to summarize some of the things that I think are pastorally germane here, that is, Jesus is saying, I want you to be faithful in your use of money. I want you to recognize that you are faithful to God first rather than money. I want you to just look at your life and say, is what's happening on the inside the same thing that's unfolding on the outside? Or are you just keeping up appearances? Because I want you to be integrated and consistent. I want people to look at you and say, what you see is what you get. And he says, I want you to be faithful in this realm of your covenants of marriage. And if you are, what does that look like? Because we bring a lot of baggage to this. Because Jesus is actually saying, I'm putting women on, 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 on more equal ground than, than men, if, if you were to look at the background and, and read through the lines a little bit regard, um, regarding uh, this topic. But he doesn't really go into it a lot. But for our, our purposes, I think I'm going to conclude the rest of the message by talking a little bit about this. Because, first of all, marriage is tough. It's not easy. If over half the people in our country say, can't do it or won't have it or doesn't seem possible, you know that it's difficult. But then other people who get married will say, I did, it, it isn't everything that I thought it would be. They're not everyone that I thought. That, they don't complete me like I thought they would. They don't answer my deepest needs like I, I, I wondered if they could. And there's a sense of if I only get married, everything in my life will get into a better place said the person who's longing to get married. The person who's married may say, if I only just find another spouse, then maybe it'll all work out. And in both cases, there's just a, a discontentment. 
that happens in what's called a covenantal relationship. I believe because the signaling that we get from out there is very much at odds. If you're just looking at this graph again, what's happening out there when it comes to marriage is very different than what's happening in here. I mean, for starters, um, you approach it like it's that person is able within themselves to meet your deepest needs. I can assure you they can't and they shouldn't. The only person that can meet your deepest needs is one person. And we've been talking about him for quite a while, if you've been paying attention. He's that guy that we make the covenant with when we marry that other person. So don't expect marriage to complete you. It won't. And the other thing is, some people look at marriage and they idolize it and they got this idea in their head about what it's going to be. They get into it with all these notions. Or maybe they even idolize their spouse <clears throat> knowing that they were attracted to them for a variety of reasons. But Jesus really wasn't part of the covenant. Yeah, we got married in the church, but he really wasn't part of it. Now, the one thing I know, given all my vast trips to the grocery store, reading the subject matter as I'm waiting in line from National Enquirer and other reliable sources of information is that it seems like no matter who we idolize, in a few years we will demonize. No exceptions. Why is that? You know, some people talk about the seven-year itch. And perhaps there's a lot of reasons why you get that itch. But one of them may be simply this. I finally come to the realization that that person isn't the person who I'd hoped they'd become. Or I hope they were. I've come to the realization that that person is not my vision. And there's a just deep discontentment about that. And while I mentioned other scriptures talk about this topic, and Paul at Corinth has a, a lot of juicy stuff to say, but when you and I are looking at this topic and we're somehow connected to a marriage in some way, we have to realize something. There is a, pri there is a priority here, and it is the only way it works. And it's a relational priority. And the very first relationship has to be Jesus even above our spouse, even above that person that we think is the most important person in the world, the only way that that will ever be sustainable is Jesus. The second priority is your spouse and your family. They come second. And the third one is, well, everyone else is a distant third. It has to be. And if you fail at the first two, you automatically fail at the third. But some of you are coming here with marriages that didn't work, and you're saying, man, this is really hurting. And I'm not here to hurt anybody. I'm not here to dredge up old wounds or um, trigger traumas from the past. Knowing divorce through my parents as well, I, I understand it profoundly. But I also know that there is a constant push to get married 
because I'm lonely, or if you're married, to be discontent. And there's a couple of barometers. One of them is the fruit of the Spirit. And you got to ask yourself every day, Holy Spirit, help me to bear fruit in this relationship. It's a covenantal relationship. I have a responsibility to it. You do, they do. But I can't own anybody else's responsibility but my own. And so I have to say, Holy Spirit, enable me to bear the fruit rather than the darkness of my own flesh. Some of us think that whenever we get into marriage that it will, um, well, it will it'll change you. Like, hey, I wasn't like this before I got married to them. But you know what marriage does? It reveals who you already are. It's just a different set of conditions where part of you comes out and that's who you are. It actually reveals more problems than it does answers all your questions and resolves all your issues. Yet the scripture says, even though that's the thing, you got to work on your covenant. And maybe you're thinking, well, that applies to everybody else but me. Jesus is actually trying to start, start a, fi- a fight here <laughs> with the Pharisees over their understanding of God's purposes. But he's trying to start actually another fight here so that we will see what we need to see clearly. And even talking about this, you know, it's kind of like I hesitate to talk about it because it's so, so personal and so emotional. And there's just so much pain. But Jesus is trying to do surgery rather than let a cancer continue until the patient's gone. And sometimes surgery hurts, but cancer hurts a lot worse. And here's something else I want you to just keep in mind. God does not hate divorced people. He does not. Nowhere in the scripture does it say God hates divorced people. It says God hates divorce because of its effect on everybody. But we also know that when Jesus died on that bloodstained cross, he didn't say this covers everything except for, well, that. No. He's trying to be preemptive because when we get off the script, we actually become an abomination. I'm not saying that in a, in a way that's condemning. But in reality, if you're a Pharisee, you're thinking, well, I don't think of that as an abomination. But if I were to define it this way, it's just a way of saying, I'm choosing a path apart from the path that is by God's creational design. I'm making up my own creational design, and I'm going to go that way. And God's going to say, that's, that's a distortion. And what pains me so much is I made this and you and relationships in such a way that if you honor according to the way I've designed it, you'll be blessed. And if you don't and you go off in that direction, you will get hurt. And I do not want that. And I don't want other people to want that because it seems like marriage is a very social thing. And perhaps we just have to revisit something here because people will ask me every year, will you marry us? We're thinking about going to the justice of the peace, but we thought it'd be nice to have a church uh, wedding. 
And I, I do, I take a deep breath. Because they have in mind a contract. And in their mind, in the back of their mind, there's this thought. I hope this lasts the rest of my life. But I also know if it becomes glass half empty all the time, I'm out. Kind of like a contract. Now, I love Mexican food. Every time I go, you know, I try to buy because I like it so much. Somebody says, hey, let's eat over there. I'll say, yeah, you can buy. But that's beside the point. That's just me being self-interested in my generosity. If you look at what happens at the end of that very enjoyable meal, and you've been there enough, you love it enough, you've done it enough times, you sign a little contract at the bottom saying, in exchange for what you've given me, I'll give you this. And then I walk out of there. And I could tell you my favorite place to eat. But it may not always be my favorite place to eat. Because they screw up a couple of times, I'm out. Hey, it was good till it wasn't. We're going down the road. And it seems like when you look at it like a contract, it's the same psychology. But when you have a covenant, you're saying before God and before other people, we're trusting him to make this work because we're eyes wide open enough to know that without him, it doesn't work. And for the Pharisees, Jesus said, you guys are making up all these rules. You're weaponizing scripture because you're not honoring God. Now, again, I'm not perfect at it, but I understand it well enough that I've paid careful attention to it. And you know, what do you mean by weaponizing scripture? Well, the one I used to always hear was, she's not submitting to me. We know Ephesians chapter 5 very well. Wives, submit to your husbands. And you can see, you know, there's some kind of military mechanism behind that. But you can also see a wife saying, yeah, but I would love you as Christ loved the church. And I'd submit. And you can just see the hostility underneath it all. And there's this sense of posture that you take to the scripture that changes everything. It's a sense of posture you take to every day. It's a sense of posture you take to the relationship that says, this is more than a contract. This is a covenant sustained and supported by God. And all that background is what Jesus is trying to offload into the moment. And a lot of people understood it, and some people are figuring it out. And if you're like me, you, you understand it, but only a lifetime will give you the significance of it. And as God is unfolding this, uh, you know, there are, there are reasons for divorce, no question. And there are probably three of them. It's not a first response by any stretch, but it is a last resort. And the first one is abandonment. And in that passage in Matthew 19, if a spouse insists over and over, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you, you got to let them go. Or abuse. Um, I really feel like that if you're abusing somebody, you kind of abandoned their person. 
You've just objectified them into somebody that you can control as an object. You've really abandoned it. And abuse can take a lot of different forms. But in reality, you're violating the covenant and you're becoming hostile and violent towards that person. It can be physical, emotional, verbal. All of those things, I think, in my mind, are a way of saying I'm abandoning you as a, as a co-participant in this covenant. I'm respecting you in that way. I'm giving you dignity in that way. And you devolve it down to you're not letting me control you as an as a object like I want you to be controlled. And therefore, I'm going to exercise greater power and weaponize the scripture against you. And you have that kind of stuff happening. I don't believe that God wants you to stay there, but it's not a first response, but a last resort. And if abuse is happening, you need to step out and say, we need to separate. We need to get counseling. We need to get help. And so I've just sort of taken the lid off of a whole lot of things that have many, many layers to them. But in the end, what I want you to realize is, you know, not only abandonment, abuse, and unfaithfulness, but Jesus is looking at the prospect of establishing this kingdom here on earth. And one day, this circle will actually be the kingdom. And Revelation 21 says that heaven will come down and they will be mated together because they will be of the same mind and the same heart. But when he mentions you cannot serve God and man, mammon, he's basically saying there's another master who's in control of this world. And he's in control of you if you're listening to his voice or the voices of the world about these very important topics that the world weighs in on and says, you got to do it this way. And if we can get a critical enough mass of people saying, you got to do it this way, then you start to think, well, since everybody's saying that I got to do it that way, I guess I got to do it that way. What Scripture is saying is what God says and what God designs is not always in alignment with what you see happening. Even in a Christian nation like the United States of America. And a prophet's job, which he's speaking prophetically to them, is to go in and say, we have to recast this whole vision because it's completely off. But if you've ever had anybody try to recast the vision for your life, besides a pastor for, you know, however long it takes him, chances are you're going to be resistant because we don't like change. We just don't like change. We like things kind of dialed in the way we got them. And when God shows up and says, yeah, but what about this? We may say, yeah, deleted. But Jesus doesn't go away, not because he wants to wreck your day, but because he wants to show you how it should be in the first place. And part of that whole process is just beginning to meet him and to look him in the face and to derive from that encounter with him that he truly is who he says he was. He is the very son of the, our creator of the universe. 
And Jesus, I've been divorced. Jesus, I've done some things I'm not proud of. Jesus, I got shame. You know what Jesus says? That's why, that's why I went there. It's like it saved you for a minute. But it's only there that we can meet. It's only there that you can find forgiveness. It's only through that that you can find a way to life everlasting. There is only one way, no matter what the world says. There is only one person who is capable of transferring you out of this domain into this one. Only one. There is only one. Because it's not about right teaching or good teaching or powerful teaching. It is about an event that broke the curse. That is really the cause behind all the pain that I've been talking about up till now. And he's the one that brings the blessing, that brings the joy, that brings the hope. Otherwise, we're just in a world like the world we're living in that's abandoned Jesus, feeling the weight of the curse. But there's hope, and we come here today to bring it to you. If there's anything I've touched on pastorally that I can help you with, I can pray for you, we can find resources for, I definitely want to do that. But I also hope we can leave here today in that place where you've begun to settle some things with him so that you can hear his call and live for him. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, as we just take this moment and we summarize everything that has been going through our hearts and our minds, our lives, and we bring it before your cross. We pray that derived from that relationship, everything else that we've talked about, every area of concern, every area of contentment, every area of disruption, we'll process that through what we see in you. Lord, we are getting ready to take the loaf and the cup which could just become a meaningless ritual and we'd be no different than the Pharisees. But yet, Lord, in light of what we've been taught, what we've learned, and hopefully my fidelity to your purposes, I pray that when we take the loaf and the cup, that we see it in a fresh way. We see a body broken because you have sacrificed so much so that we could be saved and know life. We see blood shed so that the shame that we brought into this room could once and for all be placed on your cross and we can leave here refreshed. The consequences of things, choices we've made, Lord, you even have the ability to work through them redemptively. And so with this loaf and this cup, we pray that you would bless it, that you would renew us, renew our covenant with you, 
and hopefully trust you on the road ahead when the voices that are so authoritative in the world beckon and call and dictate otherwise. Bless the loaf and the cup that our spirits would be nourished and you'd be glorified in our lives and we'd be fit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name. sure how many of you have ever been to Arlington Cemetery, but it's a pretty solemn occasion. Uh, I, I can't always understand if you read your sales flyers like I did yesterday regarding uh, Happy Memorial Day. Don't forget we have grapes on sale. Uh, you can buy everything from shrubbery to discount food today when they're really just trying to get you to come out to see them. Uh, visiting Arlington and that gives you a whole different perspective on uh, on what we look at today. Um, reading uh, the other day about the incident down in Texas, I saw the article about the young girl that um, her friend was murdered, and in case the, the murderer came back into the room, she reached over and covered herself in the blood of her friend. Who had died? Probably some of you have seen that. And, uh, as Christians, we also have our own memorial here. Uh, it's a bloodstained cross. It's not the white, perfect, in-line crosses that we see at other cemeteries, but it's the bloodstained cross. We have that as our memorial every Sunday. A Savior that covered us with His blood, that uh, went to the cross and died, and the only thing that he asked of us was to remember that sacrifice and that's what we do with this loaf and the cup here this morning so uh, if you would take that into consideration today and uh, bow with me in prayer heavenly father we we come to you today we thank you for being the ultimate sacrifice for being the example for others that the greatest uh, the greatest gift is your love for us and many have followed that pattern and given their life for others that we may live in a, a free free world and a free society here. Uh, we just thank you, Lord, that uh, these emblems, this loaf and the cup, represent your body and blood given on our behalf. And uh, be with us this coming day as we remember others, too, who have followed your example. Thank you for everything you've done for us. And for this, we give thanks in Jesus' name. time if you'd like to stand.
is overflowing from the Savior's heart. Rest here in His wondrous peace. Oh, the goodness, the goodness of Jesus satisfies Yeah. 
Lord Jesus, we come to you, the one who perfectly satisfies. You satisfied the wrath of God so that we could have the peace of Christ. And you satisfy all of our guilt and all of our shame. And even all the good things that can't deliver like you can, that have a shelf life. You satisfy it beyond what all other things can. With all of our guilt and all of our shame, we look at you and find the only remedy there is for any of it. And in you, we place our faith. And by you, we receive the gift of salvation and, seem to, and receive the gift of being delivered, not just from Satan, sin, death, and hell, and self, but no less than this either. Praise your wonderful name. And may your name forever be praised in us and in this place. And it's for your wonderful name we pray. Amen. All right, we will see you soon. It's okay. There's a lot of us.